Um, Luke 17, we're, we're starting in verse 20 and uh, going to the end of the chapter. And this is God's word to you because you're his children. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he, this is Jesus, said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. <coughs> Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and how rich it is and how many things you have to teach to us that you are there, you are God who is there, and you are God who is not silent. You are God who has revealed yourself, revealed to us uh, the meaning of this world, the story that we're living in in this world. We ask that you would take your word and it would draw us near to you, that uh, we would trust in Jesus, the King. And by trusting in him, we would have a share in your kingdom. And we pray that you would stir in us a longing for your kingdom, a longing for your rule and your reign in the earth. And uh, we just give you thanks that you've given us so much to hope in. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we are uh, talking about the kingdom of God um, uh, this morning. Uh, it's, a kingdom, uh, it's a theme that's actually throughout the Bible. And uh, that, that shows up, you know, a lot of the Old Testament is about the kings of Israel. It's about kings and rulers and uh, establishing kingdoms, wars between kingdoms, um, opposing kingdoms to, to Israel. So a lot of the story is about this kingdom. And, um, you know, one of the things that for a lot of people, the Bible is a very confusing, complex, complicated spirituality. You know, I think for a lot of people, especially in a place like Bellingham, there's this sense in which, you know, whatever the truth about the world is going to be, whatever the truth about humanity and spirituality, it's probably going to be really simple, right? It's going to be love each other. You know, let's, can we all get along? You know, God is love. It's going to be something very simple uh, like that. And, you know, in some regards, you know, the message of the Bible is simple. 
You know, we're, we're sinners, and Jesus died to forgive our sins, and we believe in them, we're reconciled to God, and God will raise us up like he raised Jesus up, and we'll live with him forever. That's kind of the offer of the gospel. <laughs> and, it's, you know, a child can, can, can believe it. But at the same time, truth um, is always complicated. The, the truth about things is always complicated. And, you know, you look at nature. On the one hand, you know, you take something like an apple tree, and you know, to get an apple tree and understand what an apple tree is about, you know, it's it's not that hard. You just open your eyes, you look at it, take the apple, take a bite out of it, and you probably have a fairly good idea about an apple tree. I mean, it's kind of simple. But if you really want to know about an apple tree, I I, I don't know about how it all works, but uh, you know, the root systems and sucking up the water in, and then some somehow the magic tree transforms the water into these little green circles that are nutritious and you know how does that all work if you really want to get into it it's very complicated and I actually some of you know that I was a mathematician before becoming a pastor and one of the things in math is uh, the the solutions to proofs and theorems are never what you expect them to be You're, you always have this intuition of oh it's probably going to work out like this it never works out like that it's always complicated. The answer is always complicated. And in science, it's the same way. There's no you know, one-size-fits-all kind of answer to every problem. The reality of the world is that it's complicated. And things that God makes, things that uh, God says, things that God does, are in some ways they're simple, but in other ways they're always complicated. They're rich. They're layered. That's how nature is. You want to be a scientist and study nature? There's a lot... You know, God's book of nature where he's revealed himself, it's complicated. And if you want to know God's truth and God's word, it's complicated as well. And so when we come to the discussion of the kingdom of God, um, that's a complicated, it's a lot of questions behind that. You know, when's the kingdom coming? You can even see that, that that's how this passage starts. Um, the Pharisees are talking to Jesus, and, uh, and it says about Jesus in verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come? It's a big question. Um, people are fascinated with it. And what's, what's interesting about the Bible is, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, there were uh, devout Jews and people in the Old Testament before Jesus coming. They were anticipating there was this coming time when God was going to make all things right in the world. And uh, th there was a Messiah who was going to come and he was going to gather all the nations together and all the nations were going to come and worship their one true God and they were going to all become believers. And the Messiah was going to raise up the righteous. There was going to be a resurrection of the righteous and they were all going to live in a kind of restored earth in the presence of God forever and ever. And so there was this marking of the kingdom is going to come at the resurrection of the righteous. And so they were looking forward to this event that was going to happen the kingdom would begin. And then this surprise, this uh, puzzle happened. It didn't happen how they thought. Because that one event was split in two. Because in some ways, the resurrection of the righteous had happened. The Messiah came and he was raised. That's what happened to Jesus. The resurrection happened. And uh, the, the Messiah was raised, but not the rest of God's people. That's coming later. And so the event of the beginning of the kingdom wasn't just a one marker split into two. And so here we are, we're sitting in the middle of the resurrection of the Messiah and the, res the resurrection of God's people. And has the kingdom begun or has it not begun? Which is it? And so what theologians have said is that the kingdom is an already and not yet situation. It's already begun and it's not yet begun. And I'll tell you, you know, that is a terribly nuanced 
and uh, amazingly wise view of the world is to have this nuanced view that the kingdom to be both optimistic that God is at work, he's doing things in the world, he's uh, saving people, he's drawing people, so the kingdom is here, and yet it's not here. As Christians, we're not triumphalistic. We don't believe, oh, you know, uh, uh, Jesus has come and everything's all right. We understand we live in a broken world and we're waiting for God to make all things right. And so what I want to do as we look at this text is look at these two kind of uh, aspects of the kingdom that we're living in the tension of is that the kingdom is in some sense already here and in some sense uh, um, it's not yet here. So those are the uh, two things we'll look at. So first of all, the kingdom is already here. Um, what are the qualities? Oh, no water today. Oh, yes, it is. It's, it's tricked me. Um, a few qualities about the kingdom to come. Three qualities. First of all, that the kingdom that is that is already here comes gradually. It comes through the presence of Jesus. And uh, it comes through the cross. So, the, so first, the kingdom is already here. It comes gradually. It comes in stages. Now, um, you see in verse 20, you know, the Pharisees are asking Jesus about the kingdom, when it's going to come. And he says, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Now, um, the, uh, the Jews who were anticipating the coming of the kingdom, coming of the Messiah, they were anticipating, you know, they were living kind of under their Roman oppressors uh, in Palestine, the Roman Empire. It was extensive in the first century. And so they were expecting that the, the, the Messiah was going to come. He's going to gather an army. There's going to be all this kind of pomp, you know, the banners and horses. And it, it was going to be this big show. And um, they're saying, you know, when, when's the show going to happen? When's the show going to begin for the kingdom to come? And Jesus says, look, it's not coming like that. The kingdom is coming subtly. It's coming gradually. He says in another place that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, that even though it's the smallest seed, uh, you know, when, it, when you plant it and it grows up, it gradually grows up and eventually becomes the biggest tree in the garden and the birds of the air come and they plant their, you know, make little nests in, in the tree. And it's welcoming and it's, it's, uh, and it's caring for the birds. It's coming gradually. It's not coming with a bang. And, uh, you know, Many Christians expect that even in their own lives that the kingdom is going to come with a bang. God's uh, work in their life is going to come all of a sudden um, and this big majestic event's going to happen and every, all their problems are going to be solved and it's going to be taken care of. And that's what sometimes people think that when they become a Christian. I'm going to become a Christian. I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm not going to have any problems. Or, or, or you know, you go to kind of a, a revival thing and, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to be doing something and slaying someone and all of a sudden uh, my life's going to be transformed forever and it's going to be this big sign but that's not how it works it works gradually and usually how the kingdom comes in our lives is through a series of deaths and resurrections death and resurrection throughout our life we're going to die and we're going to experience deaths where God brings uh, humbles us crushes us and then he raises us again transformed and we experience that throughout our life. And at each time that happens and we're, God raises up and gives us new life, we're different than we were before. And that's how the kingdom comes in our life. And you know what? It's interesting, even though that you know, it happens kind of in an in, in a individual believer's life of experiencing deaths and resurrections, the church has experienced that as well. There's a great quote by uh, G.K. Chesterton. He says, uh, Christendom has had a series of revolutions and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, 
for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. And so the church, you know, just in the same way that we grow kind of individually, the church has grown that way. And you look that, you know, the first believers, they're kind of in Palestine, and the Jews rejected Jesus, and so uh, it kind of died there, and it raised up in Antioch, which is up in Asia. And uh, that was where the church began to grow. And then, uh, and then it went down into North Africa in the coming centuries. Um, and then it, as it died in North Africa, it, it emerged in, in Western Europe where that became the center of Christianity. But then now, you know, Christianity is basically dead in Europe, and uh, it, it went to the U.S. and to the New World. And now, as, as people in you know, the U.S. are less and less interested in Christianity, it's dying here, it's resurrecting in Africa and South America and China, and, uh, and each time it's growing and getting bigger and resurrecting. And that's the pattern. Now, why the kingdom is growing right now in stages gradually as Jesus is going forward and drawing people to himself and bringing people into the kingdom. Now, why, why that pattern? Death and resurrection, why is that the way that the kingdom comes? Well, of course, uh, the second thing about the kingdom is already here is that the kingdom comes through the presence of Jesus. That's the pattern of Jesus. The kingdom comes gradually, and it comes through the presence of Jesus. You look, uh, look there in the end of, of verse 21, it says, uh, For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, this is a famous verse. You may have heard it translated differently, that the kingdom of God is within you. And uh, one of the, it, in Greek, it's written, you know, if we were in the south, it would be the kingdom of God is, in, is within y'all. You know, that's, it's a plural you. So uh, when that, uh, what, that's why they're translating that the, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you because it's not something that's, uh, the kingdom of God is not something that's in my heart. It's something that's in the, the midst of God's people. It's a corporate thing. It's, it's something that's among you. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, for many Christians, they've taken that verse where it says the kingdom of God is within you and they say, well, you, Christianity is something that happens in my soul. Uh, the kingdom of God is something that happens in my soul. I close my eyes and I, I meditate and that feeling that I have inside, that's the kingdom of God. And actually, that's much more of a kind of Buddhist um, understanding of, of the transformation or um, uh, of spirituality. Uh, actually, G.K. Chesterton has another place where he talks about um, the difference between Buddhist uh, art and Christ Christian art throughout history. And one of the big differences, you look at, at Buddhist kind of uh, monks or something, if there's a statue of them, their eyes are always closed. You know, they're in kind of a cross-legged position. Their eyes are closed, and they're looking inward. And yet the Christian saints, the pictures of them, they're, they're always like wide-eyed and kind of, friend, you know, kind of uh, um, crazy and wide-eyed and, you know, anticipating that something wild is about to happen. It's because they're looking outward. The kingdom of God is it's something that's happening in the world is happening in relationships. It's happening in the transformation of the world. It's something that God is on the move in the creation. And so it's not so much about me looking in, but me seeing what God is doing and, and participating in that. And in particular, um, the kingdom of God is not something in my heart, but the kingdom of God is where the king is. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees is saying, when is the kingdom going to come? And he says, the kingdom's in the midst of you. You're looking at it. I'm the king. The king's here. And you're completely missing uh, where the kingdom is because you're missing the king. And Jesus uh, is the king. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, for us as a church, 
that, I mean, that's our hope, right? We're hoping to see God's will done in Bellingham and in our church. And that's why, what are we always talking about? We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the presence of Jesus. We're talking about the gospel because in the gospel, that's where Jesus is. That's why we come to the supper every, every week is because the kingdom comes where the king is. And Jesus says, this is, I'm here. I'm here in this meal. Come to me and eat. And when Jesus is there, wherever Jesus is, that's where the kingdom is coming. And I'll tell you what that means for us. You know, he's talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, listen, you know, where's the kingdom? You're looking at the king. I'm in bodily presence and my flesh and blood is right in front of you and they're missing it. Where's Jesus' flesh and blood right now? Right here. At the right hand of the Father, that's true. <laughs> but also right here. We are the body of Christ, right? We're the body of Christ. Um, I was reading a book this week, um, uh, Peter Lightheart, by a guy named Peter Lightheart, and... Um, uh, this is what he says, during Jesus' earthly life, if you wanted to have life, you needed to draw near to the personal body of Jesus. If you wanted to have life, you needed to draw near to Jesus' flesh and blood. Wherever Jesus was, there was joy, life, and power. And then he goes on to say that throughout her history, the church continues to be the place where Christ reaches out to the world, the site of his active presence. The church joined to the God-man is the new humanity filled with the Spirit of Jesus, and as such is the body of Christ. Wherever she goes, there is the power and love and life and joy that was manifested in the personal body of the Word of Life. So if you want to, you know, if wherever Jesus' body, his physical presence is, that's where the kingdom is, that's where we are. And that's, you know, that's our role uh, here in Bellingham, um, is that it's here. But more specifically, it's not just that uh, the kingdom is gradual and that it, uh, it, it comes wherever the presence of Jesus is, but the kingdom also comes through the cross. That's something unique about Jesus' kingdom is that it comes through the cross. And you can uh, um, uh, they, you look at verse 25 there. Um, as Jesus is talking about the Son of Man's coming and I'm going to be revealed, the kingdom's coming, he says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And what that means is, is that Jesus' kingdom does not come by acts of power, by acts of coercion. You know, he's talking in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire has created the Pax Romana, where it's unified all, all around the Mediterranean Sea, all these lands and peoples. But the way they did that was if anyone disagreed with them, they're crucified. And Jesus does the opposite. To bring people into his kingdom, he doesn't crucify people who oppose him. He's crucified for people who oppose him. And draws them. It, it is a rejection of that power. And, you know, um, this is an important thing um, for Christians, American Christians especially, to understand. You know, I'm, I, 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 there's a book that I've been working through called uh, To Change the World. And it's a book about um, how Christians have uh, gone about trying to change the world. You know, we want to, a lot of Christians in our culture say, you know, our culture is... Uh, Morals are going down the tube. Um, we've we've lost our kind of spiritual heart. And um, how are we going to change the world? And one of the main ways that Christians say we're going to do that is we need to get in a position of power politically. And we say, if I can get into a position of power, what we can do is we can make the laws and we can make people uh, follow, or, you know, believe the things we believe. The things we believe can be taught in schools. The things that we can believe uh, uh, will be taught morally. And uh, if we want to change the world, we need to get into a position of power. Now, listen, I, 
I think we should be involved in politics. I think politics are important. But one of the things that we believe as Christians is that the, world, the way the world has changed is not through that kind of power. We cannot put ourselves in a position of power and just make people do what we want them to. It comes through the sacrificial love of the cross. And, and just to drive this home, you know, um, that, uh, that the cross is far more powerful than any other position of power, political power that we can get. Look at what Jesus has done. Here's a king who comes and he dies sacrificially to forgive the sins of his enemies and to, by his love, draw them to himself. Look at the size of Jesus' kingdom. You know, I, I've read one book that says there are 2.3 billion Christians in the world right now. Now, that's probably a little high, but let's say there's somewhere between a billion and two billion. That means uh, the Christian church is probably bigger than China. So it's, it would be the biggest nation in the world. That's Jesus' kingdom. And uh, it's multi-ethnic. He has people from every nation. He's brought different ethnic groups together and under his headship like no other nation has been able to do. No one else has been able to do that. You know, you look at Europe um, and, and the Western culture has prided itself on multiculturalism. We want all different kinds of religions. We're going to embrace everyone. Right now, you look in France and Germany and uh, as, as Islam is coming in uh, to these nations, they don't know what to do with it. They say... This, these people are so culturally different than us, we don't know how to live with them. They're not able to live multiculturally. Only Jesus was able to do it. Only Jesus has been able to do it. And he's bringing uh, um, all kinds of people together. And, um, and you look at the, the, um, how long Jesus' kingdom has lasted. Take any nation or any empire in the history of the world. Jesus' kingdom has lasted 2,000 years. Can you find any, any kingdom that's lasted that long? And how did he do it? It wasn't through power. It was through the sacrificial love of the cross. He's putting out the message of, I'm willing to forgive your sins freely. Come and receive my grace. And look at what it's doing. That's what we're a part of. So the kingdom is already coming. It's already here. And um, the kingdom is here because of the gospel. So that's why we're always talking about the gospel, is that you are saved by free grace. Jesus has paid for all your sins. Come to him and be loved freely and be transformed. Okay? Now, on the other hand, though, the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here as well. Um, and so that's the second part. And um, yeah. let me say that um, you know, Christians have said many strange things about the coming of the kingdom, about Jesus' second coming. And uh, one thing that I want to talk a little bit about that's very popular in American Christianity is something called the rapture. And uh, if you're familiar with the rapture, it comes from, uh, this is one of the passages that people get the idea from, for the, uh, of the rapture from. Uh, look at verse 34. As Jesus is describing uh, his coming, it says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And so uh, how this has been played out is that basically what's going to happen is Jesus is going to come. There's different orderings and charts that people have of, of how this is all going to work. But it's something of, you know, people are flying planes and the pilot disappears while the plane is flying because he was a Christian. And all the Christians are kind of um, zapped up into heaven when Jesus is coming. The, um, and uh, the problem with that... Um, the reason why we can't read a passage like that, that this way is because Jesus was, uh, all of his teaching was informed by the Old Testament. 
So even though this sounds like, oh, there's two people in a bed and one's taken, he disappears, so he must have been sucked into heaven. Well, Jesus was understanding was from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, one of the main events that happened, now, now I need to, because this is a big thing, I need to, I'm going to get a little bit into the Old Testament, so bear with me. Um, of, uh, of, let me try to explain this. In the Old Testament, one of the big events that happened was that in 586 BC was the fall of Jerusalem. The Babylonians came into Jerusalem and they took the Jews into exile and uh, they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple. And then they took all the people away from their homeland, away from their fields, and brought them into exile to be under foreign power. And so the same word that's used to be taken into exile is the word that Jesus is using here. Two people are, you know, sleeping. One is taken. In this passage, you don't want to be the one taken. This is a word of violence that's being done to you. Someone is violating you. And if you're in this passage, you, don't, you want to be the one left. <laughs> you want to be the one stayed there because the person who's being taken away is being either enslaved or they're being, uh, they're being killed by a foreign oppressor. And uh, we don't want to be the ones say, so what is this talking about? What, what is happening? What is Jesus describing? The Son of Man is going to be revealed. Um, what exactly is going to happen? Well, um, one of the things that's important to understand about biblical prophecy, when uh, the biblical authors or Jesus is saying something that's going to happen in the future, is that um, there's always an immediate fulfillment to that prophecy and a future fulfillment. Okay, so the immediate fulfillment, um, you know, I was talking to, let me give you an example of this. I was talking to Chris Van Hoffigan this week, and he, he gave me the, the example of, in Isaiah 7, it says that there's going to be a virgin who's going to conceive and bear a child. And we've always read that, say, well, that's talking about Jesus, which is going to happen, uh, you know, 700 years later, Jesus was born as a virgin. Well, that's true. That is what that's talking about. But also in Isaiah 8, there's a prophetess who conceives and has a son. In the very next chapter, there was in the immediate context, there was a fulfillment, and there was a later fulfillment to that. The same thing is happening here, is that initially what's going to happen, what Jesus is talking about, is within one generation of Jesus' uh, Jesus' teaching, there is going to be a judgment on Jerusalem. And the Romans come into Jerusalem in 70 AD, and again, they destroy the temple, just like 586. They're a foreign, uh, a foreign occupier, and, uh, and they're going to uh, destroy, destroy the temple, and that's going to be the end of the Old, time, uh, of the Old Testament uh, religion. There's no more sacrifices, there's, uh, and there's a transition from Old Testament religion into the, the New Testament church. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'm scattering you to the nations to go make disciples, and if you want to hold on to your uh, Old Testament, you know, the, the temple and your Judaism then listen, there's a foreign occupier coming and you better run. Or you're going to be there and one person's going to be taken. Half of you are going to be taken into slavery or you're going to be, uh, um, uh, or you're going to be killed. So there's an Im- immediate fulfillment of the, son, the, uh, the, the coming of the Son of Man, but there's also a future fulfillment. 70 AD is a foretaste of when Jesus is going to come again. And this is part of Jesus' teaching that he says that he is, uh, Jesus is going to come again and he is going to bring the kingdom, and he's going to make all things right in God's earth. And so what that means is that Jesus is going to come again in judgment. He's going to come in judgment on, on, uh, in uh, 70 AD to Jerusalem, but he's also going to come to the whole world. And he's going to make himself known, and he's going to cleanse the world of all evil, and he's going to f- and fill the world uh, with God's presence. 
And what that means for us is that when Jesus comes, we have two options. Jesus is going to be cleansing the world of all evil. And we know that each one of us have evil in us. We're sinners. uh, We're bitter. uh, We oppose God. We don't believe God. We rebel against God. And so we either need to be taken out of the land. We need to be removed. Or we need to be forgiven. And what Jesus right now is doing is he's offering everyone, come and be forgiven. Come and be a part of the new world where uh, where God reigns. And, uh, and so there's a, an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment, okay? So uh, let me just say two quick things to wrap up on how do we respond to that. The first is, we don't predict when Jesus is coming, okay? I, there's been this guy this last year, Harold Camping, who's, he's made two predictions in the last year. I think it was May 21st and October 21st was a, was a second try. And uh, both of them failed. 100% of the people who have tried to predict when Jesus is coming have been wrong. 100%. Just don't try it. Um, don't make a chart. If someone shows you a chart with Bible verses, they're wrong. Jesus says, you don't know when I'm coming. I'm coming like a thief in the night. Um, it, you cannot predict it. You cannot, uh, you cannot calculate, uh, read the newspaper and the Bible next together and, and put them next to each other and say, think you can crack the code. That, that you can't do that. Um, but secondly... It's interesting that even though we can't predict when he's coming, we are still supposed to be ready. And uh, we should be ready for the coming. And the, and the images that Jesus uses here is the flood. You, know, you had all these people that uh, Noah's building a big boat out in the desert, and he's telling everyone there's a judgment coming, and they're just kind of going about their life. And they should have been getting ready for the flood. They should have been making friends with Noah. Hey, can you make a, can you make a room for me on there? Uh, and they weren't doing that, right? And the same with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, there was judgment coming, and, and, uh, and these angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah and said, the city's going to be destroyed. You should flee. You should be saved. God, uh, God will forgive you. And it says, uh, Jesus says, we should remember Lot's wife. Um, Lot's wife was a Sodomite. She lived in that city. And God was inviting her to come out of that city and to be rescued and to be saved and to be a part of his inheritance with Lot and with Abraham and with their family. And she turned back. Her heart was still in Sodom. That was her, whole, her old life, the, the world that she was living in. This was a city that gang-raped uh, visitors to their city. They did that regularly. And she loved that city. She said, I, that's, that's my family. That's my culture. I want to go back to it. And what Jesus is saying is that there are many things that God is going to be stripping from our lives. And we need to keep our hearts fixed on the day of his coming, the kingdom that is coming. And that should be our hope. Not in fear, because we've heard the gospel. We, we know that there's forgiveness offered. We know when we, that judgment comes, that even though we're going to have a whole litter of sins, they've been forgiven in Jesus. And so we look forward to that day and we live our life aiming at that day and we need to be ready. And so here we are, we're living in a tension of a kingdom that is already present. It's already at work. That's why you're here. That's why God's gathered us, is because the kingdom's already present. Jesus is already present. The king is already present. And yet the fullness of the kingdom is coming. And so we look forward to that day with anticipation. And may he uh, come soon, Lord Jesus. So let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your your word. We pray that you would help us to work through... um, uh, many uh, confusing uh, texts, many things to work through. We ask that you give us wisdom and knowledge to understand your word. 
but even more, you'd give us hearts that are anticipating your coming with longing to stand before you as forgiven sinners and to have a share in your kingdom. Uh, we look forward to that day in Jesus' name.